GP Insights, a health cert podcast. Practical advice for busy GPs on how to treat with confidence and grow their practice. Welcome everyone to another episode of Health Cert's GP Insights podcast. Today we're talking about cosmetic injectables and more widely about the growing aesthetic medicine industry in Australia with our special guest, Eleanor Curry, registered nurse and co-founder of Aesthetic Med. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell me more about yourself, your professional journey and what you do? Thank you so much for, for having me. Um, my background, I've been a registered nurse for, oh, wow, way too long now <laughs> to really even kind of think about when, how many years, but I think it's been about 16, nearly 18 years. Um, my original background was in the hospitals. So predominantly kind of working in um, critical care, but did a lot of sort of various shifts while traveling as well. So I did a lot of bank and agency shifts in, in various different kind of wards. Um, I got into the aesthetic industry. It was always something that was of interest ever since I kind of actually um, graduated, really. I remember thinking, oh, that would be kind of a pretty cool thing to do, to go and do some injectables, but didn't really think too much into it. Um, but I became a little bit more interested when I was over in London. So I looked into it a little bit more as to what was actually possible in the non-surgical aesthetic area. And I honestly, my mind was blown. I had no idea. Um, you know, I thought, I thought it was just a little bit of, you know, anti-wrinkle treatments here and there. But um, what I kind of discovered was there's a whole realm of, you know, skin health kind of procedures. And so, yeah, that pretty much started my, my love and um, quest to kind of find a job in that space. And um, I actually ended up working and, and managing to get a job with one of the um, uh, quite well-known cosmetic doctors over in um, London, which is Dr. Rita Rakers. So she's very well known as being like the London, London Lip Queen um, was her brand. And she was a wonderful mentor. So I pretty much started from, from the ground up. Um, so I, I was on reception and I was doing pre and post care before I got trained up into the actual procedures. Um, but then, yeah, eventually in 2010, I was trained up in injectables. I was doing a bit of laser and radio frequency before that. Um, and then in 2011, I think, in the end of 2011, I actually came back to Australia for good um, with my then boyfriend and now husband. Um, and... I actually ended up getting a job with Salter Medical. So they were the makers of Fraxel and Thamage. So I actually went into the corporate scene for a little bit and um, yeah, really enjoyed it. I, I, I loved it. I loved the, the training. I loved the business side of it. I loved helping practices grow. I obviously knew the machines kind of inside and out. So it was pretty, pretty easy transition for me. Um, and then, yeah, following that, Salter Medical got bought out by Valiant and I ended up being approached by Galderma and, and joined them for about four and a half years. And then, yeah, I decided to kind of take a bit of a hiatus out of um, corporate just for a bit more flexibility. And then, of course, you know, I wasn't, wasn't happy enough doing nothing. So I decided I'd probably look at um, a bit of a business venture, uh, which I've, was an idea I'd had for a long, long time. Um, and yeah, I just had a bit, of, bit more time to, to bring it to fruition, I think, during COVID, um, that being aesthetic net. So, yeah. That, that's Thank me. you so much for sharing your journey. That's, that's really interesting. Now, um, let's talk about the aesthetic industry in Australia. So I believe Australians currently spend $1 billion on aesthetic treatments every year and that demand is only growing, you know, obviously as well as demand for skilled practitioners who can actually administer 
um, cosmetic injectables. Can you tell me a bit more about the most recent growth of aesthetic medicine Australia and you know what it means for doctors as well as consumers slash patients? I think in terms of the data and statistics for Australia per se, a lot of the data that we get is from the International Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons website, so the ISAPS websites, and they've looked at um, obviously global statistics. Uh, in 2018, they, re they released a report that actually had the Australian statistics, so that's obviously where, where you've gotten your numbers from. The most recent report doesn't include Australia, unfortunately, but if we look at the global statistics, you know, and we're kind of told, and we're looking at sort of from 2015 to 2019, we're kind of told this story as well from the pharmaceutical companies that, you know, year on year, we're getting an average compound annual growth rate of about 10% across both injectables. However, when you kind of look at the most recent um, comparison between 2018 and 2019, and you break out, you break down where the growth is coming from, we only actually had 2.9% growth from anti-wrinkle, so botulinum toxin. Um, the rest of the growth is actually coming from both predominantly the HA filler market, because um, that represents the largest portion of um, the fillers, but also some of the biostimulators have got some um, pretty incredible growth. So HA itself is growing at 15.7%, um, which is obviously well and above the compound annual growth rate of 10. Um, Calcium hydroxyapatite, so what we know as RADIS, is 64.9% growth. And then Sculpture is 24.1%. Yeah. So those, the biostimulators, I mean, they've got great growth and, and it looks quite impressive. I guess they only really represent probably about 5 or so percent of the market. Um, so whilst they're a small player, it's certainly something that we need to kind of, I guess, um, be aware of and, and watch this space, so to speak, I think, over the coming years. Um, but I think from a, from a safety perspective, I guess, looking at where the majority of the growth is coming from is really increasing our, our, our risk, really. Mm. Um, I think most aesthetic practitioners would agree that, you know, dermal fillers and biostimulators pose a much greater risk um, of, in terms of patient safety and well-being than what um, anti-wrinkle treatments do, just the nature of them. Um, yet our society and the way, I guess, that we um, regulate these products is very different from dermal fillers to botulinum toxins. So that poses a bit of an issue. I yeah, think. absolutely. I mean, like you said, it's obviously, um, I guess, a medical procedure, cosmetic procedure and adverse reactions will occur and side effects. So can you tell me more about, you know, some of the most common adverse effects of cosmetic injectables um, practitioners should be aware of? Well, I guess, you know, when we're looking at, I mean, anti-wrinkle, you know, if, we, if we're looking at that, that's most predominantly would be, you know, relaxation of an adjacent muscle. So whether that be a brow ptosis or, or eyelid ptosis is pretty rare, um, certainly amongst more experienced practitioners that understand kind of dosing and placement and, and um, I guess being able to, I guess, predict bulk muscle mass versus appropriate dosing, not just doing cooker cutty, cooker cutty, cookie cutter, sorry, <laughs> can't get my sayings right, <laughs> cookie cutter dosing. Um, I think, you know, that that pretty much is is pretty rare, the, the lid ptosis, but um, obviously hitting other muscles in terms of when we're going to off-label indications, mm. lower face, um, certainly accidentally hitting um, the depressor labi inferioris, those sorts of things to create an asymmetrical smile is not that uncommon. Mm. Um, when we're talking about dermal fillers, Probably the most common is, you know, lumps and bumps, superficial, not inflammatory nodules, that kind of thing. That's just very much down to um, placement. Uh, sometimes there, there are elements of obviously 
product and, and rheology that will play a part, but ultimately a large proportion of that is just how and where you place the dermal filler. Um, right. In terms of the rarer side effects, um, you know, when we're looking at blindness statistics, I guess, um, you know, when we're doing literature reviews and we're looking at, I guess, the um, documented cases of blindness globally, you know, we're looking at about one in 300,000 actually when we're looking at the, the ISAPS data and the reported cases um, mm -hmm. from the um, Belesne study that did the 2019, it was a um, review of her previous study. Um, now, is it really one in 300,000 here in Australia? No, mm -hmm. um, certainly blindness is one of the, I guess, adverse events that is very um, indication or treatment area related, I think. So it, it's primarily stemming from, you know, uh, areas like the nasal bridge, um, actually more so than the glabella, which is what a lot of people kind of think the glabella is more at risk than the nasal bridge. It's actually the opposite way around now. Um, mm. Yeah, so, so nasal bridge, glabella, foreheads, temples, periorbital, those sorts of areas obviously will pose a, a greater risk yes. um, for, for blindness, which a lot of those areas are done by probably more experienced practitioners or hopefully should mm. be done by more experienced practitioners. Um, so, you know, it's also technique related as well. But when we're looking at probably, you know, I guess statistically when we're looking at adverse events, I guess one of the, the issues I have is that whilst the number itself might seem rare, so as an example, I guess vascular occlusion is anywhere sort of from 0.015% to 0.05% um, mm -hmm. of, of an incident rate. Now, I know firsthand from having worked in pharmaceutical companies and being a trainer, most of the vascular occlusions do not get written up in clinical papers. So whilst we have wow. that data, the larger, the gross amount of underreporting when it comes to vascular occlusions, so I guess they are quite acute in nature and when they're managed well, they're actually okay. So, you know, it's very sort of short-lived in terms of the occlusion side of things. So people kind of um, forget it pretty quickly once it's, once it's happened and don't think to kind of write it up from, from a literature standpoint. Um, but that would be probably one of the more common areas, yeah. I guess, you know, uh, is commonly reported. Um, certainly on the rise are delayed inflammatory reactions. Um, so if we're looking at things like delayed inflammatory nodules, delayed onset inflammatory nodules, so... You know, a lot of people kind of refer to the nodules as colloquial as, you know, granulomas or, or biofilms as they're actually pathological diagnosis. So they're, they're not, they shouldn't be used kind of as the clinical diagnostic term, but they are certainly on the rise. And they're kind of, the, again, with literature, we're looking on average around 1% of our treatments will probably, you know, result in some sort of a, a delayed inflammatory reaction. Um, right. So with the more products that are coming to the market as well, we're kind of trying to do a lot more research about different types of gels, rheology, and also where we should be placing these gels as well. Yeah, they place apart. Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much for that overview. And I mean, as you said, obviously it's incredibly important for the practitioner to be well informed and trained to avoid those complications. But um can we talk a bit more about maybe other factors that can cause uh, or contribute uh, to a patient having adverse reactions other than maybe the practitioner not placing the product correctly? 
Sure. I mean, I think as a whole, we, you know, there is a number of factors. We have a bit of a stigma about, you know, um, <laughs> adverse events that it's very much only um, experience related, mm. which, you know, we know is completely incorrect. Like there, there, is, there are yeah. studies that have surveyed, you know, experience injectors with over 11 years experience and 65% of them have had, you know, one or more adverse events. So, Whilst experience is obviously one aspect, so that being the practitioner, we've kind of developed a bit of the four P's of adverse events, I suppose, which is, you know, the practitioner, the patient, the placement and the product. It's kind of how we kind of break it down. But certainly with the practitioner, yes, experience can help, but it's not a, it's not the be all and end all. Um, mm-hmm. So even if you are experiencing it, it's, it's very much a numbers game as well. You train enough people. you'll you'll get something go a little bit pear-shaped um obviously your knowledge of anatomy very much so if you inject too fast you'll you'll run a higher risk um, of adverse events um in terms of the patient I, i think there's not enough i guess potentially knowledge or even just respect for anatomical variances there are so many people with you know various true anastomoses that are not you know, represented in the textbooks and even the textbooks are very much, you know, um, varied amongst different types of publications and, and where you access that information from. So I think we need to have a very healthy respect that not everybody is textbook. Um, I think there's also immunological factors that we need to be aware of. You know, each time we're injecting any of the products, whether it be even botulinum toxin or filler, you know, we are stimulating an immune response. Mm. So we need to make sure that when we're you know, selecting patients that we're selecting those that are really fit and well prior to treatment. Um, There's a lot of talk, I guess, about the COVID vaccine and and is that a concern and really any vaccination, you know, stimulates an immune response. And so if we're injecting any kind of an essentially a foreign agent, albeit hyaluronic acid, it still has been modified. We want to make sure that the immune system is as relaxed as possible prior to treatment and haven't had any recent illness and that kind of thing. Um, placement definitely obviously helps as well in terms of where you put it, as we mentioned. Um, I think the most important thing is also, you know, when we are doing bolus treatments, just to make sure that the we're only using really small aliquots, you know, mm-hmm. and when we're talking that, we're actually talking only 0.1 of a mil. Um, a lot of people seem to think 0.2 is a, a small bolus. It's actually not. It travels quite, quite far. So, I think, you know, if we need more, we can always go back in. That's fine. Um, But I think doing less is more approaches is really, really important. Excellent. That would probably also um, require some practitioners to, you know, sometimes you have to push back on patients who want more. Um, It's probably sometimes better to write the more, you know. um, Um, 100%. I think, yeah, that that psychosocial element of our patients is something that we Mm. really need to be, um, focusing on in the consultation there's a lot that's going on behind the scenes that we don't know and we need to find out what the drive is to have these treatments you know Absolutely. they need to be they need to be sourcing these treatments for the right reasons excellent thanks so much for that Elena. and um so what options do practitioners actually have when something goes wrong i mean what what training and support um is currently available for practitioners I guess to train as to how to inject, you know, look, there are a number of training providers, as you guys know, obviously. Um, Over the years, I have kind of seen and witnessed some of the formats of some of them. Um, 
there are a lot that are very profit-based. And by mm -hmm. that, I mean, I guess the, the content and some of even the training is actually outsourced, um, you know, through whether it be pharmaceutical training and, and that may be fine, but if that's the only thing that you're reliant on, um, mm -hmm. then it's, it, it's showcasing kind of where, where the ethos is at. I think there's, you know, a lot of um, academies will jam pack attendees will have very minimal or essentially kind of not real, not really relevant theoretical content to actual injectables. It'll be very skin-based, which is obviously I'm very much an advocate. We need to know about skin, but we also need to know about injectables. And if that's what the primary um, job is that that person's wanting to actually get, they need to know everything and anything about, about injectables. So I think it's about you know, unfortunately, I, I've seen a bit of a reliance on pharmaceutical company training from practitioners. And I think it's, you know, having having been there and having seen the amount of time and resources it probably takes from a company to actually train, you know, a new injector up, you know, they, they don't make any money. No, no one really makes much money from training up new injectors um, because it is so, you know, um, time consuming and there's a lot of product involved and there's a lot of resources behind the scenes. But I think the fact that pharmaceutical companies are supporting and probably nearly supporting a little bit too much more than probably what they should have sort of, you know, maybe perhaps created an environment that people expect everything for nothing a little right. bit. Um, and I think that that is certainly an issue. And I think that there needs to be some sort of a, a framework and we need to kind of be making sure that, you know, training companies are, you know, credible, you know, like you guys, I mean, the people that you have, behind the scenes and actually actively doing the, the content and presenting and doing the trainings, they're actually invested in this industry. They're, they're actively, you know, treating people themselves. So yeah. it's, it's not just relying on, you know, secondhand hand-me-downs of content, I think. Yeah, excellent. So um, let's say, you know, something does go wrong in, in, in practice, maybe, especially if the practitioner is just starting out. Do you have any practical advice or strategies or, you know, options or outlets that um, doctors can go to, you know, to get help or to get advice? Sure. Well, I, I guess that's why I started Aesthetic Met with Bronwyn. I mean, there isn't actually anything else out there that is a right. formalised, structured aesthetic safety support service. So, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that I guess any practitioner who is out there has the right connections, has access to the knowledge, whether it's off-label or not, is it, you know, we're able to obviously to provide off-label information being both registered nurses as well. Um, so we wanted to make sure that everybody had at the click of a button access to aesthetic safety information wherever they went. So um, we wanted to make sure that we were connecting people with the right connections. So it's not even an if something goes wrong, it's a when. It really is, a, mm. it's a when. And so it's a case of making sure that we're kind of openly talking about aesthetic safety, adverse events a lot more, just to kind of create more awareness so that people, when they're coming into the industry, they understand that it will happen. It's a part of our job. You know, it's not as much as a 1% might sound really rare in Australia, for example, with delayed inflammatory reactions, that probably equates to about 40 people a week. Wow. Yeah. You know, so that, that, that's a lot of people. And the same with vascular occlusions, it's at least a minimum 14 mm. people a week. So, you know, the statistic might be rare, but the amount of injectables that we do here in Australia is huge. So there are a lot of people that are getting 
you know, a lot of patients and practitioners obviously that are experiencing these things. And we need to make sure that everyone is connected and supported, you know, as promptly as possible to, to optimise the outcome. So, yeah, look, I mean, in terms of aesthetic med, that's pretty much what we do. We're always going to be safety focused. We're not, we're not looking at being a training academy as to how to inject. We want to actually send them to you guys. We want to send them to credible people. Um, we just want to make sure that, yeah, no matter what, everyone's got access to that information. Excellent. And can you just tell me a bit more, how can doctors join Aesthetic Med? And um, I guess, you know, what else they will find? Obviously, a lot of safety information and, you know, access to, um, to support, uh, to support network. Um, what, what else are the benefits and how do doctors join? Yeah, sure. So joining is, is really simple. So it's just at our website, which is www.aestheticmet.com. Um, so the idea of the name is Aesthetic Medical Emergency Team. So that's sort of where that, that MET stands from. Um, in terms of what the membership, you know, what you get access to, it's a, it's a yearly membership, um, really affordable. It's less than a dollar a day. Um, we've made that way so that price isn't a deterrent for people wanting to join. Um, but basically you get access to what we call the safety portal. So within the safety portal, we've got a variety of different resources, including um, advisory approved adverse event protocols. So we've set up, you know, the first aesthetic complication advisory panel. So that's um, a panel consisting of Dr. Stephen Liu, Dr. Greg Woodman, Kate Molay-Brown and Dr. Benjamin Burt as well. So mm -hmm. we've tried to get kind of a, a really good diverse skill set um, amongst the advisors as well, which I think is really important. Um, but they've all overseen the protocols. So we want to try and get a, a unified approach as to how we manage adverse events. Um, so they're all obviously listed on there. We've got anatomy images and um, textbooks that people can purchase if they're wanting to as well that are very anatomically correct, <laughs> incredible sources. Um, we have detailed, unbiased information. So one thing I guess, you know, both probably and I are really kind of frustrated with is just how reliant um, customers are on information from representatives and every representative is going to tell you that their product is good. I mean, that, that's yeah. their job. It's completely biased, but you know, people don't have time, I suppose, at the end of a really busy day, no matter where you're working to go and do a lot of the research and to find and to sift through what is kind of accurate, what is inaccurate. Um, and that's pretty much what we're doing where we're, doing extensive research, critically analysing things, piecing the puzzles together and giving unbiased information on, on all products in the market. So it's, it's about making sure we've got the right information that's evidence-based. Um, and then we've also got a centralised regulatory section as well. So we've kind of collated all the data as opposed to having everyone having to go to various different websites to access that. It's all sitting there. Um, that's obviously for Australian documents at the moment. Um, we are open to international and we'll, we're kind of expanding on that, but we just don't quite have phone support there at the moment, but um, yeah. Yeah, support's just here in Australia for now. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And we at HealthSet are obviously very supportive of what you do. And, you know, one of our aesthetic course uh, presenters, Dr. Jenny Kimmins, is part of your specialist uh, network, um, uh, you know, support providers, which uh, we obviously, you know, very happy to see because she's a very passionate presenter, a passionate um, aesthetics doctor and um, a very dedicated educator. So we're very, very supportive with what you do. And, um, yeah, so we encourage everyone to come and check you out and potentially subscribe to um, get that information and get that support um, to really help grow the aesthetic um, practice and feel safe and confident about delivering those treatments. 
All right, um, Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us today. And, you know, we really look forward to touching base again um, next time and to learn a bit more about strategies, um, you know, how to cope with complications that might occur and just learn a bit more about the education that you provide. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe so you can get updates whenever we post more. And please share it with others. And for more info, please go to helpsert.com.